Well, good morning. We made it, and I know most of us were there last night, so I trust that you guys got some rest. But we are here in the book of Revelation. We're continuing in our series in a we-don't-know-how-long um, weekly series. Might go on for seven weeks, might go on for ten weeks. We'll just see where the Lord takes us. But I really want us to take the message, the first message in the book of Revelation, and this message in a way of teaching more than preaching, uh, to really dissect what's being said here because it is rich in symbolism, it is rich in meaning. You almost have to pause at every word and, and just really meditate upon what's being said here. And so there's no, there's no need to rush through this, but I think it's important before we get into the specific letters for the churches that we really take our time and see what the Holy Spirit is saying through the Word of God. And before that, we need to pray and ask Him to give us what we need. Uh, we don't want information only. We want to be changed by what we know. And so let's just ask God for that. Lord, we ask You that Christ would be seen and that every man would be veiled, hidden behind the cross, that, Lord, You may peel off of our eyes the scales, Lord, that might hinder us from seeing how beautiful Jesus is, how wonderful he is, as we just sang about. And so, Lord, help us see Jesus for who he is now, who he is today. We need you. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us what we need. Some need encouragement, Lord. Some need clarity. Some need conviction. Some need change. Some need the power to move forward in their sanctification. And we ask that you provide all that we need this morning as we come under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in the book of Revelation. And just a recap, we have to understand that this book has a purpose and it's for the church. And this book was written by John, given to him by Christ, and for the purpose of strengthening the saints in the midst of persecution, and not just in the persecution that they're experiencing in this moment, but the persecution that they're about to experience in greater ways. And so this letter has a purpose, that they may grow in their faithfulness and their steadfastness to the testimony of Jesus and the gospel. And not just that, but we can see this as the churches, as we're going to explore in a moment, for that time in Asia Minor, but we talked about in our first message that these churches are, yes, literal churches, but also symbolic and a picture of the complete church. That number seven that we talked about, where God uses that number throughout Scripture to talk about completeness, to talk about the universal aspect of the church. And so it's for us today. And if there's any doubt for that, if you read as we explore in the next weeks to come, if we read each letter to every church, there's this one common phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what? What the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so this is for all churches at all times. And we talked about how in the prologue and in the greeting aspect of the letter, we see a picture of Jesus. We see almost this letter given to the people by not just the Christ, but by the triune God. And we see even in the beginning of this letter, that Christ is already victorious. Christ is victorious. And what we're about to read is what we ought to see in Christ now. What we ought to see Christ as who He is now. 
And so John now, in this letter, is about to explain how he was commissioned to write this amazing apocalyptic book. He's now going to explain how he was commissioned by God himself to give this letter of not just instruction, but revelation. And so we read from verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden satch around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. In verse 9, as we begin, we see John making a statement, and it's important. He's saying, I, John. And we talked about how in the first nine verses of this letter alone, we see that John is letting know the audience that he's really John. This is really me, the Apostle John, because up to this point, as we learned last time, All the apostles died. The only one left, according to church history, is John the Apostle. And so he really wants to make it clear to his audience and to the church that this is really me. This is the one who testified to you about the Son of God in the Gospel of John. This is really me who taught you, who's been with you, who's discipled you. And I might be exiled right now, but this is truly me. I am the Apostle John. But he doesn't call himself an Apostle. Look how he references himself. He says, I, John, your brother and your partner. And so John here is telling them, I'm your brother. And this is an insight about how John not only sees himself, but how he sees the body of Christ. That we are brothers and sisters. That is our DNA. And we all have this one common commonality though we're from different races and different cultures there's one thing that keeps us the same and that's that's the blood of Jesus we're brothers we're sisters I'm your brother we're family and I'm not just your brother but I'm your partner we're doing this together we're going through this together not just in the good times in the bad times we're partners for the kingdom we're partners in persecution we're partners in all seasons I'm your partner And we go all the way back to verse 1. He calls himself a servant. So John, already here, look at this man's humility. Look at how he sees himself and how he wants them to see him. I'm your brother. I'm your partner. I'm a servant. And what he's also saying indirectly is, as though this message, yes, is for you, it's also for me. This is for me. Though it's coming from my mouth and though it's coming from my hand rather and I was called to do this, I'm on the same level as you are. We need that today. 
We need people that won't take their position in the body of Christ and lord it over others, but will call themselves brother and partners and servants. That's who I am. But more specifically, I'm your brother and I'm your partner in what? In the tribulation. In the tribulation. This is not the great tribulation that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. This is not the great one. That tribulation will be so intense, it says that even the elect, if possible, might fall away. It is so intense that Jesus says, unless I've shortened those days, nobody would be able to handle it. But that is not the tribulation that he's talking about here. This is talking about the common tribulation that all believers are called to experience. In Acts 14.22, Paul goes around and preaching to different places and he says this. This was his mission. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encourage them to continue in the faith. And reminding them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We must enter the kingdom. We will all enter the kingdom of God, guys. But between now and then, there's going to be many tribulations. Hardships, persecutions. If you're going through a season right now where it's intense and you feel like you can't move on, good. You're on your way to the kingdom of God. That is normal. That is something. But here's the, here's the beauty. And this is what John's saying. You don't have to do it alone. We're not called to do it alone, but we're brothers and we're partners in the tribulation that we get to suffer together. That we get to experience persecution together. That we get to move on through these things as we see the kingdom of God as our end goal together. And so he says, not just in tribulation, but in the kingdom. I'm your brother and I'm your partner in the kingdom. If somebody were to ask you, what is the kingdom, what would you be able to say? We use that word a lot, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But what do we really mean when we say kingdom? Well, it's not as simple as we think. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there are two aspects to it. There's a spiritual aspect and there's a physical aspect. There's a here and later aspect to it. That the kingdom of God is here right now, and it is to come. In Luke 17, 21, the Pharisees are talking to Jesus because they're hearing that Jesus is saying he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the one to come to usher in the kingdom of God. And they say, hey, Jesus, uh, where is this kingdom of God that you're talking about? Because they were expecting a physical kingdom. They were expecting him to come and overthrow the Romans and overthrow all the, the, the persecution and, and everything that they were experiencing. A David-like figure. Where is the kingdom? And he says this in the King James. He says, the kingdom of God is within you. And other translations says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so the kingdom, in the spiritual sense, when we say we're a part of the kingdom, it says that we are under Christ's rulership. We are all under the rulership of Christ and we abide by his kingdom rules and commands. And so we are all a part of his kingdom now. We abide by his rules. We call him Lord. We call him master. And so there's a spiritual understanding of the kingdom. We are a kingdom of priests now. But there's also the future coming and the physical manifestation of the kingdom. And this is what Jesus also says later on in Matthew 25, 34. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed 
by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so there is a physical kingdom that is coming. This is what we believe in Christians. We believe that Jesus is going to come one day and he is going to establish a physical kingdom and he will sit on a physical throne and we will live in a physical realm under his rulership. And between the foundation of the world and that manifestation of his kingdom, it's been developing, as he says in Matthew 25, that from the foundation of the world, the kingdom prepared for you is coming. And so we're part of his kingdom, yes. We identify that kingdom. We're not Americans. You're not Middle Eastern. Your citizenship is in heaven. Okay? And one day, his kingdom is fully going to manifest. So we wait that day. So we are brothers and we are partners in the tribulation, yes, and in the kingdom. And in what? The patient endurance. And he makes a full circle here. That though we are experiencing tribulation and though we are awaiting his kingdom and we are part of his kingdom, it's going to require patient endurance to, to expect and to wait for it to come. And so we're brothers and partners in that. And those realities, the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance, those are only found where? In Jesus. That are in Jesus. And so those experiences and those realities are only for those who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you said yes to Jesus. Yes, you are going to experience tribulation. You are a part of a kingdom and we do Wait patiently and with endurance. And he continues. Was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so this is what he says. I was somewhere. I was somewhere. Where was he? On this island called Patmos. And we don't know much detail about it. And sometimes people have to lean on tradition and church history. So we're going to do a little bit of that right now. Patmos was this little island just off of um, Asia Minor here into the water, into the Mediterranean. And Patmos was used by the Romans as an island to isolate and to enslave, in a sense, criminals against the Roman regime, criminals against the Roman agenda. And so what they would do is they would take people, they would throw them on this island, and it was a rocky island. There wasn't anything there. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't a nice island. It wasn't a place where you would go for vacation. It was a criminal island. And some would be enslaved to break rocks and, and, and to create supplies to bring back to the Romans. And some would just literally wander around and just die of starvation. And so some would even say, and some even write, that John, at this point in his life, who was in his 90s, was called by Domitian, who was the Roman emperor at the time, to deny his faith. And he wouldn't. And so what did they do? They took a boiling pot of oil and dipped him in it. And so they put him in the boiling and they watched him and they were going to see his skin and his meat literally melt off his bones. But what happened? He comes out of it and there's not a scratch on him. He's perfectly intact. And they're freaking out. And so Domitian is in a place where he's totally startled and he says, well, get him out of here. And so what do they do? They put him on a ship and they throw him this 90-year-old something man on the island called Patmos. And their goal here was to not just isolate him but silence him 
so that he, being the elders, one of the elders of the churches at this time, would not spread and have his influence of Christianity. But this is the glorious truth. That in the attempt to silence the gospel is where he gets the greatest revelation of all time. In the attempt to silence what God wants to do, Christ in his sovereignty allows him to receive one of the greatest truths that we have in the Bible. And even on a personal level. John is suffering here. This is not a place you want to be. But even in John's maybe debatable greatest times of suffering, he receives one of the greatest revelations of Jesus. And that's a principle for all of us. Is that we can experience suffering, but that suffering is never in vain. And that sometimes only in suffering will you see Jesus in a way that you couldn't have any other way. God knows how to use suffering to sanctify God knows how to use suffering to bring us to Him. God knows how to use suffering to open our eyes to see Him in a way that we've never seen Him before. We see that in Scripture. We see it through Job. We see it in church history. We see it through people that have lived not too long ago, like Corey Ten Boom. We know Corey Ten Boom, who was in and experienced the Holocaust in a concentration camp. And she tells of the horrors of her being in the concentration camp as a Christian. And how she would be stuffed in a room just like this with hundreds of people. And people would die of skin disease and starvation. But at the same time, out of that experience of great suffering, she received such great revelation. She experienced a grace from God to forgive that she couldn't have any other way. She has a testimony now that she, till this day, is being used to encourage those that are suffering. And she went through hell on earth. And so in suffering, we have this hope that we can receive something from Christ that we wouldn't be able to have any other way. That's the hope that we have in suffering. That's the hope that we have in trials and tribulations. You can be stuck on an island by yourself, away from the church, away from your brothers and sisters, and still receive something from Christ. He doesn't leave nor forsake. So, he says, I was on an island called Palmos on what? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why I'm a criminal. If you're going to go to jail, that's a good reason to go to jail for. For the gospel. That's encouraging. That this 90-something-year-old man, he's not retired. He's preaching. And as he's preaching, he gets thrown away. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so we see here that he continues in verse 10. I was in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now we got to examine those, those phrases. I was in the Spirit. And this is a term that is rarely used in the Bible. But it's, it's simply to express that he was in a heightened spiritual reality now. That he was in a place where the physical was not necessarily influencing him. Now he's in a spiritual realm. He's in a spiritually heightened reality And Jesus even uses this term when he talks about David writing Psalms 110, that messianic psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, said at my right hand. And he tells the Pharisees, David, who was in the spirit, wrote this. And so we know that John now is in a different place. He's in a heightened spiritual realm. 
But we see even when it happens. On the Lord's Day. Now that's also another term that's not familiar in the Bible. On the Lord's Day. Some people think that that's the day of the Lord. He, he's writing about Judgment Day, but that's, that's not what it's saying there. We have this very shallow understanding of what the Lord's Day is. We don't have too much information on it, but some assume that this is the first day of the week. That this is the Lord's Day in which we commemorate and we, we celebrate and we think about what Jesus has done on the cross and we see it in Acts and we see it in 1 Corinthians that the Christians gathered together to break bread on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. And they gathered their offering on the Lord's Day. And so if that is true, if this is what's happening here, there's even a greater and deeper meaning to John's devotion and John's love for Jesus. That he didn't just receive this revelation, just moping around and just, yeah, you know, I guess I'm just going to die here. But he was on this island. He was isolated from his brothers and sisters. But still, he is worshiping on the Lord's day. That he recognizes the Lord's day and he's actually worshiping. He's seeking God on the Lord's day. In the midst of all the wreck and all the things that he could be complaining about, here he is on the Lord's day. He's trying to tell them something that they already know. The, the immediate audience knows. So, oh, John, you were worshiping on the Lord's day on the island called Patmos. Are you kidding me? So he's on the Lord's day, and he's in the Spirit. And when he's in the Spirit, that's also a statement of prophetic authority. When Ezekiel says, I'm in the Spirit, the Spirit took me and I'm dangling me between the heavens and the earth, there's now prophetic authority this is how I receive my commissioning. This is convicting. Before we move on, that's just convicting. That he's on this island. Nobody has to wake up John and say, hey, wake up for church, John. He knows on the Lord's day, here I am, I'm going to worship the Lord, wherever I am. And what does he say? I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, and he moves on and on and on to explain the churches to which he was supposed to write to. And we understand that those seven churches, as we just talked about earlier on, are not just for those seven churches, but for the church universally. And he hears this voice like a trumpet. It's loud. And so what does he do? He's worshiping on the Lord's day, and he hears this authoritative voice so he turns around and this is what he sees I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw this is incredible seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man so let's just stop there for a moment the first thing he sees he doesn't see where the voice is coming from at first he turns around and he sees these seven individual golden lampstands. Now here we are now getting into symbolic, apocalyptic things. And we're like, well, here we go. Let's start. But this is the hope that we have. Just scroll down to verse 20 and we know what those seven golden lampstands are. As for the mystery, see it's a mystery. Even Jesus says it's a mystery. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in, the, in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. That speaks wonders 
and truths and insights about what the church is. The church is a lampstand. Notice the church is not the light. The church is the lampstand. It carries the light. You and I are not the light of the world. We carry the light of the world. But a lampstand on its own is useless over time. It's helpless over time. And so the lampstands are not left on their own. There is one in the midst of the lampstands. One like a son of man. One who will be able to trim the wicks. One that will be able to provide the oil. One that will be able to watch over them. One that will be able to take care of them and make sure that they're burning. And that is the reality of Jesus in the life of the church. In the relationship of the church. That he's in the midst of the church and he takes care of the church. And the very source of our light and our consistency to keep burning is dependent upon the Son of Man. And so we're the lampstand. And the Son of Man is the one who takes care of the lamp and provides the fire and provides the trimming and provides everything that we need to be able to be the light in the world. And we see here, I saw the golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now we've seen that before. Where have we seen that before? Where has the term son of man come from before? Daniel. And even Jesus himself refers to himself as the son of man. And some people like to make it simple and say, well, when Jesus calls himself the son of God, he's calling himself God. And when he's calling him the son of man, he's calling himself, you know, human. And he's the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. Partly true, but that's, that's not the the significance of this term is that when he calls himself the son of man and when John calls him the son of man, we're going all the way back to the Old Testament to Daniel's vision, to Daniel's vision of one like a son of man. And Jesus makes this statement about the son of man. When the Pharisees ask him, are you the Christ? If anybody tells you, it's so simple. If anybody tells you where Jesus calls himself, God, this is another scripture. The Pharisees on the, on the trial of Jesus says, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? This is in Matthew 26, 23. Jesus answered with the next verse. Jesus said to them, You have said so. What else do you need to see? You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's not calling himself human at this point. Because the reaction is so intense that he rips his robe. The high priest rips his robe and says, this is blasphemy. Let's kill him. And so I am the son of man in Daniel chapter 7. That highly exalted figure is me. So what Daniel sees in his apocalyptic nature, this is the beauty of the consistency of the Bible. That hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, Daniel, a man in Babylon, sees the same thing as John on the island called Patmos. One like a son of man. And now he begins to describe what this son of man looks like. And he says this. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden satch around his chest. What do you think of when you hear robe? Or when you see somebody in a robe? Or when you read somebody with a robe? King and priest. In Exodus 29, we see that a priest is to wear a robe and even have certain elements upon his chest 
and upon his robe. And so the first thing we know about the Son of Man is that he is both king and priest. And mind you, don't forget this truth. He's in the midst of the golden lampstand. He is the king and the ruler of the church. And he is the high priest that is interceding for us. That's what we see here. This robe represents his, his, his rulership and his priestliness. I am a priest and I am a king. And I'm in the midst of the churches. You see me now? Do you see who I am? I'm your king. I'm your priest. I strengthen you. I intercede for you. I'm here for you. But not just that. The hairs of his head were white. These are not meaningless details. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And we've also seen this before in Daniel's vision. Let me read this. This is, this is so significant. When he says this, this is going back to Daniel 7, 9. When who? When Daniel sees the vision of who? The Ancient of Days coming. And there's one detail in Daniel 7, 9. It says that the Ancient of Days, this is talking about God the Father. Because later on we see the Son of Man coming onto the scene. So we're talking about God the Father here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And we see him coming, and we see what? In verse 9, his hair is like pure wool. But wait a minute. The Son of Man here has hair like wool, and the Ancient of Days has hair pure like wool? Yes, because the Son has the same attributes as his Father. Like Father, like Son. And that hair being white, when you see somebody with white hair, what do you know? He's aged. He's older. And that speaks of his eternality. It speaks of the fact that he was before all things. That he always existed. And the white also speaks of what? Purity, holiness, sinlessness. And so if you merge those together, the fact that his hair was white, concerning that he's aged, the ancient of days, and the fact that it represents purity, that he is what? Eternally holy, eternally pure, eternally set apart. That he carries the same attributes as the Father, even in his hair. I saw him with what? Hairs on his head that were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And we see this later on in Revelation chapter 2 when he's talking about and talking to the church of Thyatira. He says, I am the one who has eyes like flames of fire. And then he begins to speak of what he sees in the church. And so when we're talking about his eyes being like flames of fire, we're talking about one who sees everything, who perceives everything. Nothing you can hide. He sees it all. And he pierces through every dark corner. Nobody else might see it in the church, but Jesus does. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden. He perceives everything. You could be fooling everybody, but Christ sees through it all. The same way you put anything in fire, it will melt. 
you put anybody's, anybody's ministry in that fire, he's going to see the motive. He's going to see the intentions. That's what he sees. It pierces through everything else. His eyes were like eyes of fire. And fire symbolizes judgment. So he judges with his eyes. He just sees and he can pierce through. Already we're seeing a different Jesus that we see on our paintings. And in our movies too. His eyes were like eyes of flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. His feet, his feet were like burnished bronze. And so we know that bronze speaks of stability and sternness and strength. But the fact that they were burnished, the fact that they too also went through fire, speaks of Jesus and what he's been through. He himself has been through the refiner's fire. He experienced the wrath of God himself. And he overcame. And his feet are like burnished bronze, which also speak of judgment. So those are his, those are his feet look. And it says to the church of Thyatira that, Yes, he has eyes like flames of fire, but also feet like burnished bronze. He walks with those kind of feet. They're holy. They're holy. And he moves on and says, And his voice like the roar of many waters. If you've been to Niagara Falls, I've been one too many times. But every time I go, there's one thing that always takes my breath away for the first few minutes that I'm like, I get used to this. Not just the sight of the falls, but the sound of the falls. Not just what you see, but the fact that when you hear the water crashing, you feel it in your chest. It's like surround sound almost. It's powerful. And what we see here is that early on he says, I heard a voice like a trumpet, and now he sees and he says, I hear a voice like a roar of many waters. When somebody lifts their voice, they're trying to translate authority. And what he's saying here is that when Jesus speaks, he means it. And when Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. When he utters words, it makes you tremble. His voice is like a voice that roars. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And we don't have to guess what these seven stars are because in verse 20, he tells us. The same way we know what the seven golden lampstands are, we know what the seven stars are. The seven stars are what? The angels. The angels of the seven churches. Now, this is interesting because when we get into the letters, we're going to see here, let's just even look at verse 1. We're peeking ahead, but it's okay. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. And that's for every single letter. Now, there's some conflict here. Because if we read it on its surface level, we would think that there's an angel assigned to every single church. But nowhere in the Bible do you see an angel assigned by God to teach. Angels do not have a teaching ministry that is given to humans, that is given to us as vessels. We can teach. Angels don't teach. They send messages. They protect. They do what they got to do, but they do not teach. And so we have to kind of go into the original wording here, the root word. And the word there, in its original meaning, can also be used for messenger. 
So it's not just angels, celestial beings, but we're talking about messengers. And so the majority of people believe that these angels that are spoken of are not literal angels, but are messengers. They are leaders and pastors of these churches. That is who these letters are given to. Because they would take these letters and they would read them to their congregation. And so he's saying, I hold these seven, which also is a significant number, talking about not just literally seven, but all pastors and all leaders in the ministry, I hold them in my hand. I protect them, I keep them, I guard them. Not just that though, they are under my control and they are under my authority. What a picture of what a minister is. That you are simply a tool in his hand. That he uses you how he wants to use you. You don't go around and do what you want to do and say what you want to say behind the pulpit. You don't go and do what you want to do. You submit to the rulership of him. He does protect you. He does choose you. He does call you. But he also is in control of you. You preach what he tells you to preach. You do what he says for you to do. Because he has you in his hand. When something is in my hand, I control it. If you want to be in the ministry, you got to let go of yourself. You got to let Christ control your life. Every aspect, not just what you're going to preach on Sunday morning. Your every day, every minute of your day belongs to him. They're in my hand. I protect them and I keep them. But they're also in control under my authority. They are in my hand. And this is an interesting picture. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's not a Jesus that you're going to jump up on his lap. This is a different Jesus we see here. What is this two-edged sword that comes from his mouth? A two-edged sword is a heavy sword, and it's very powerful. And it's reference to what in Hebrews? as the word of God. And we know that God's word cuts God word divides. God word has power. God word brings results. But that's not necessarily what's being said of concerning this sword in his mouth. Once again, the sword that is being spoken of is answered in Revelation 19.15. Revelation 19.15 answers what this sword is used for. And it says it right here. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to what? Strike down the nations. That sword that comes out of his mouth is for judgment. That sword that comes out of his mouth is to strike nations when he comes on that white horse. But it's not just to judge nations, it's to defend the church. It's to defend the church. That all the enemies that have come against the church, all the people that have come into the church and try to sow things that are not of God, every single person that has stood against the bride of Christ will one day experience that sword lashed upon them. And some would say this is not a literal sword, and I would probably have to agree. But it's a picture that represents the power of his word. And the same power that God has to graciously create has the same power to ultimately destroy. Two-edged sword that comes from his mouth. 
And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Have you ever stared into the sun on a new day on a clear day without clouds? You can't stare at it too long. And this speaks of the glory of God. This speaks about the beauty of God. This speaks about the power of God in his countenance alone. That you can't even stare at him if you wanted to. So this glory, but remember, is in the midst of the church. It is the glory of Christ that shines through the church. He is the very thing that illuminates in the church. He is the very thing that breaks through in the church. He is the center of the church. And so we see here that his face shines like the sun. He gets all the attention. He gets the spotlight. Notice, the pastors are stars. Jesus is the sun. He outshines the pastors. He outshines the ministers. He's the one that is to receive all glory and worship, all devotion. He outshines everything in the church. Why is this important? Why do we need to go through all these details? Why do we need to describe Jesus this way? If there's one thing you're going to take from this, if there's one application, it's this application. It's not to do something physically. It's not to minister more. It's not to volunteer more in your church or show up early. It's none of that. There's one thing that you need to take from this message and this. This is it. You need to see Jesus this way. This is the only place in all the Bible where we describe Jesus from head to toe. There's no other place in the Bible where we see this scripture other than Isaiah 53 verse 2, which speaks about him walking here on earth in the flesh, where it says that he has no beauty that we should desire him. Other than that, this is the only place in the entire Bible where we describe the Son of Man. Why? Because this is how we ought to see him. Is this how we see Jesus? When you think of Jesus, do we see this? Is this the image that comes to our mind? I believe a majority don't. And this is the purpose of why John is writing this, that we ought to see Christ this way. And if you see Christ this way, you're going to change the way you pray. You're going to change the way you act in church service. You're going to change the way you worship. You're going to change the way you suffer. You're going to change the way you endure in your ministry. If you see Christ this way, because he's speaking to a specific audience, you'll pull through. Because we don't see a Christ in a tomb here. We don't see a Christ in a manger. We see a Christ that is all glorious, victorious, conquering, gloriously beautiful, gloriously terrifying, but reigning over all. When you have the right perception of Christ, you'll be able to serve him the way he wants you to serve him. And that's what John is doing here. John is trying to paint a picture to promote faithfulness and fearlessness. To promote faithfulness in the church and fearlessness in the church. You don't have to fear the Roman emperors. Jesus reigns over all of them. You don't have to fear persecution. He has a sword that's coming out of his mouth. He will deal with the nations one day. 
You don't have to worry about your influence for Christ in your own strength. There is one who stands in the midst of the lampstands and he will provide the fire. He will provide the trimming. He will provide and protect what you so badly want to do for him. We need the right perspective of Jesus. We have lost our perspective. We've treated... I just read this the other day and I got angry over Facebook. And I'm sure the person was sincere, but in light of this, it angers me sometimes. I love the big guy upstairs. He's not the big guy. He's not Santa. You can't even stare in his face. How does John react to this vision? How we all should react, whether we want it or not, really. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It was so overwhelming that he could not even stand. He could not even register it in his brain what he was seeing. It was so overwhelming to his mind and to his body and to his understandings that he just collapsed. He collapsed. The closest person, arguably, to Jesus when he was on earth collapses when he sees him. This is not the Jesus that I laid my head on. This is not the Jesus that was beaten up by Roman soldiers. This is not the Jesus that was hanging on a cross. This is a different Jesus. And he collapses. But it's still the same Jesus. Because look what Jesus does afterwards. But he said, but he laid rather his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Though we are to revere and though we are to see him this way, we are not to be afraid of him. We are to understand that this king is on our side. That he is for us. That he protects us. That he delights in us. And so we are not to fear him when we see him this way. Fear not. And this is also how we ought to perceive Christ. I am the first and the last, and we talked about it in the first message, and the living one, and the living one. I died. I did die, John. But behold, I am alive forevermore. How does Christ want us to see him? How should we perceive Christ in the midst of persecution and trials and tribulations? As alive. He is living Right now, as we are hearing from his word, there is a living Christ. Right now, he's alive. We don't sing about a martyr that died and never rose again. We don't sing about a prophet that once lived and died and he's still in the tomb. No, he's alive right now. Right now. Every time you sing to him, he's alive and he hears you. Every time you pray to him, he's alive and he hears you. Every time you serve him, he's alive and he sees you. John, I want you to know and I want the church to know that yes, I did die, but I'm alive right now and I'm staying alive. 
And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys. I took those keys. I rule and reign over death now and Hades. We don't even have to fear death. We shouldn't fear death. Because there's somebody who has the keys to them. And he's not giving them to the devil. He never will. And so when we see this Jesus, when we understand who this Christ is, it's supposed to promote something in us. This is how Jesus introduces himself to John so that he can introduce this Jesus to the church. That he is alive, that he is glorious, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful. That one day he will trample on his enemies with his burnished feet. That one day he will destroy his enemies with the sword in his mouth. And he is in the midst of the church. And he sees all things. And he sees our motives. And he sees our perseverance. And he takes care of our influence in the dark world. This is a glorious Jesus. And it should promote a desire to serve him more faithfully in spite of what's going on around us. And it's supposed to promote a fearlessness. If you fear this, this king, a godly fear, you won't fear anybody else. If you know that this Jesus, you take this text and you put that over your wall, you put it over your computer, you start your day by reading who this Jesus is, you won't fear anybody else. He's in control. And this is what he commissions him to do in verse 19. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And that is exactly the template of this book. He says, write down the things that you have seen. That is chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 is, are the things that he has seen. Write the things that are. And that's chapter 2 and 3. We're going to talk about how the church is in John's day. Also a reflection how the church could be in our day. And we're going to use every letter to reflect on whether we are truly the church of Ephesus or Laodicea or Thyatira. We're going to examine ourselves through those letters. But also the things that are to take place. And that's 5 over to 22. Everything in the future that is to take place, write down these things. So John right now accomplishes his first task. I wrote down the things that are. Rather, that have been, I'm about to write the things that are. And that's what we're going to get into next week. We're going to get into next week the things that are, and we're going to take every letter and bring them in light of our church and ask God if he sees it the same way. Let's pray.